Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are starting a new series this morning, and so I invite you to take your Bibles and be finding the New Testament book of Colossians as we start a new study through this book, Colossians, and we'll be looking at the first eight verses. Why is it that we are so good at that which we are not supposed to do? For example, there is no need for me to preach a sermon on how to criticize other people more effectively. Most of us have that down. We have never read a book about that subject. We have not heard from our parents or our Sunday school teachers giving us three easy steps to be more critical of others. It just comes naturally for many of us, depending, of course, upon your personality and temperament. Social media has given us more platforms to share our criticisms and the anonymity to do it in harsher tones, but it's nothing new. People have always been critical of one another. I think it's more widespread, but I don't think it's anything new. But I do think it is driving deeper and deeper divisions among people along a host of lines. Racial, religious, political, these and many other divisions are only growing worse and more hostile. And certainly that can be said about what is going on in the church as well. It seems that we've come to the point in our lives where we're not allowed to fellowship, or at least we are unable to fellowship with anybody else unless they share our beliefs 100% of the time. We've no room left for honest disagreements and debates. We no longer have the capacity for civil discussions. We just get mad at each other and start labeling or calling names. Everyone who doesn't agree with me is a liberal or a Marxist, or they've become woke or they're apathetic. The labels and names are endless and they are not accurate. So while there is no need for a sermon on how to be more critical, there is a greater and growing need for more sermons on how to get along with people, especially those we disagree with. And this includes our treatment within the body of Christ, how you and I within the same church treat each other and get along with each other. Church divisions and disputes are notorious for their staying power, for how long they go on, for their pettiness, that is, the subject of whatever the division might be, and ultimately for the damage they create. If you grew up in church, you can probably think back to a time in that church where there was a family that was against another family, and either that dispute continued for a long period of time or one of the two families left the church along with those who agreed with them. I mean, even Paul had a disagreement with Barnabas about a missionary trip. I mean, they couldn't even agree on who to take with them on a missionary journey, and so they went their separate ways. Speaking of Paul, this morning we are going to start this letter that Paul wrote to the church 
in Colossae. It is one of my favorite New Testament books because when I first went to seminary, my first semester of seminary, the first elective I took in seminary was an in-depth study of the book of Colossians. It was the first time in my life that I had ever done an in-depth Bible study verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And the seminary I went to got its sort of direction or its missional statement from this book. Chapter 1 in verse 18, Paul says that in all things he might have the preeminence. The ESV from which I'll read in a moment says it a little bit differently, but that's the gist of it. One commentator has said that Colossians has had an impact on Christian theology and practice out of proportion to its size. Another calls it the most intriguing of all of the Pauline letters. So as we start this morning, we're going to hear Paul's introduction. But if you know anything about Paul, you know that even in an introduction, there is a lot of theology and a lot of practical statements that we can learn even from what we might consider the introduction to a letter. And we're going to get a glimpse into his prayer life, not only this week, but actually for the next two because he's going to go on an extended prayer on behalf of the believers in Colossae. Now here Paul is not being critical of them. There are other letters where he's a whole lot harsher than he is here in Colossians. So he's not being critical of them, even though he is going to have to correct them on certain issues. Instead of being critical, he is thankful. And he expresses that thanks in his prayer. Praying for and being thankful for fellow believers sounds a lot better than being critical of one another, isn't it? I mean, shouldn't it be our nature that rather than being critical of one another within the body of Christ, we are thankful for each other and lifting one another up to God in prayer? Well, that's what we're going to see as we start this book, a prayer of thanks. And our goal is going to be that we learn how to look for things in others for which to be thankful and to thank God for these things. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. All right, so the first thing we need to talk about this morning is our need to be thankful for Christian background. Now, by that, I do not mean your background and growing up in a Christian home, although that is something to be thankful for and something that we know was true of Timothy. So what I mean by that is simply this, 
there's some background information that we've got to go through, right? Anytime we start a new book, you know we have to do this. And in a sermon, all points are supposed to be, not always are, but they're supposed to be parallel. So I couldn't just say, number one, background information. I've got to say, number one, we need to be thankful for background or Christian information. So I want to begin by talking to you about the men who are involved in this drama. You, of course, know the Apostle Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles and the author of quite a bit of our New Testament. There are some people who dispute the authorship of Paul when it comes to Colossians, and they say that perhaps one of his associates wrote it closely after his death, but we are not going to go down that path. Instead, we are going to take it at face value. It says in verse 1 that it is authored by Paul the apostle, and therefore he is the primary author. Now, in other letters, he states that he is an apostle because certain churches were challenging his apostleship. That is not the case in Colossae. So here it is simply a title reminding us that he is authored or, or that he is authorized by God and that he is sent by God on a mission for God. Now, there is a co-author here as well. He says, not only does Paul write this, but Timothy is an author as well. So some, of, some people believe that he simply uh, spoke this to Timothy and Timothy wrote it down. Others that he gave Timothy great leeway and Timothy wrote it. And then when we come to the end of the book, Paul says, I'm writing this final greeting with my own hand. It was common in that culture for authors to use what we would call secretaries to write down their words. And therefore, Timothy joins Paul in authoring this letter, even as Timothy joined Paul in the second missionary journey and became one of, if not Paul's closest associate, his right-hand man. Epaphras is also mentioned. You saw that in verses 7 and 8. He is a man who has traveled from Colossae to wherever Paul is in writing this letter, and he is telling Paul what is going on in the church, which necessitates the writing of this letter. He is from Colossae. Likely, he was converted under Paul's ministry while Paul was in Ephesus, which is just over 100 miles away from Colossae. It seems likely that Paul majored on the more prominent cities. That is, he stayed where there was greater populations, and therefore he sent out his associates into the surrounding areas to evangelize, and it would make sense, therefore, that Epaphras would go to Colossae because that's his hometown. And so Paul sends Epaphras, having been converted in Ephesus, to Colossae, and he begins the church there. It is Epaphras, not Paul, that establishes the church in Colossae. Now, another man will appear later, a man by the name of Tychicus, who is actually the bearer of this letter. That is, he's the one who brings the letter physically to the city of Colossae. The city of Colossae was in what we call the Lycus Valley. It's modern-day Turkey. It was one of three cities in that area, the others being Laodicea, which was about 12 miles away, and Hierapolis, which was about 15 miles away, forming what we would call a tri-city area with Colossae. Colossae had been the chief of these cities for five centuries or more before Christ. However, at the time of Christ, and therefore at the time of Paul, Colossae had diminished in importance. There had been a major trade route 
that had been moved. And as a result, the traffic had gone to Laodicea rather than Colossae. And so Colossae as a city began to decline, though we don't know how big it was at this time. And therefore, the church had obviously been in decline as well. And we have no idea how big the church was. But this is a church and a city that the Apostle Paul had never been to. He did not know personally the people there other than what he was told. He had never been to the city. He had never been to the church. The church is never mentioned in all of the travel logs in the book of Acts. So this is no doubt the least important church to which Paul addressed a letter. This whole area, this tri-city area, was devastated by an earthquake in A.D. 60 or 61, which is about the same time in all likelihood that this letter was written. And while the two other cities, Hierapolis and Laodicea, have been excavated, Colossae, for whatever reason, never has been. Now, we can't know for certain, but the letter is likely written during a prison stay, one of two, either a prison stay of Paul's in Ephesus that the Bible does not speak about, in which case this letter would have been written from about 52 to 55 AD, or I think it's more likely that this letter is written from Paul's Roman prison stay, and that would have put it in about 60 to 62. We know it was written from prison because at the end of the letter, Paul says, remember my chains. If it was written in Rome, it's likely Paul's last of his written letters. Now Philemon, you've heard his name, he was a prominent member of the church in Colossae, and the church likely met in his home. And so the letter to Philemon was written probably at about the same time and carried again by Tychicus along with Onesimus, the runaway slave. So Tychicus, Onesimus, and these two letters, Colossae and Philemon, are taken from Rome likely to Colossae by this man named Tychicus. We know that the church there was largely Gentile in nature, though there was a minority of Jews. We know that in part because there is absolutely no quotations in this letter from the Old Testament telling us that Paul is likely writing to a Gentile audience. Now, most of the letters in the New Testament are what we call occasional letters. What does that mean? It means that there was an occasion that necessitated their writing. It's not real difficult. So something happened that resulted in Paul, in this case, needing to write a letter. The problem for us is we don't have all of that information. All we have is the letter itself. We don't know what Epaphras said to Paul that led him to write this letter. And so we have to try to piece it together by what we have. And that's the best we can do. And therefore, it has occasioned much scholarly debate as to what's going on in this church. What's the problem in this church to which Paul is writing and addressing? Well, it's probably one of two things. Either there has been a mixture, that is, other religions have come in and mingled with Christianity, or this is a Jewish issue, that is, some of the Jews, the minority in the church, are pushing Judaism and Jewish regulations on the Gentiles in Colossae. So it's one of those two things. But what we do know very clearly is the sufficiency of Christ is under attack. What that means is this. Is Jesus enough? Or do we need Jesus plus something else? 
Do we have to add something to Jesus in order to experience growth in the Christian life? Well, when you put it that way, this letter could have been written in this decade or frankly in any decade of Christian history. Because there have always been, and I suppose there always will be, those who claim that they have found some secret, some mystery, something that you're missing, and you can experience at least fully the Christian life without that experience that they are teaching. They don't deny Jesus. They don't deny your need for Jesus. They simply say you need Jesus plus whatever it is they have. It might be a vision, it might be an experience, it might be some new teaching that they've discovered, oftentimes claiming that they got it directly from God. And usually these kinds of things attract a significant amount of followers, at least initially, and then ultimately it fades away, only to be revived by some other spiritual guru who takes the place with another option that is really the same, it's just in a different name. Therefore, this book of Colossians has much to teach us about not only genuine salvation, but the sufficiency of Christ for living the Christian life. Yes, Jesus is sufficient for salvation, but he is also sufficient for sanctification. He is indeed all we need. But for that to be experienced, Jesus must be preeminent, meaning he must be first in our lives. All right, so now are you thankful for Christian background or are you thankful that I'm done with Christian background? So let's move to the second point. Secondly, we notice that we are to be thankful for Christian virtues. Now you see the parallel, right? That's why I had to word the first one the way I did. So now we're going to look at Christian virtues that Paul mentions here. After the first couple of verses of introduction, he usually begins with a time of thanks. And this letter is no different, other than the fact that the thanks in this letter is significantly longer than the thankfulness that we see in others. You see in verse 3 that Paul is thanking God in prayer on a regular basis for the believers in Colossae. And remember... These are not people he knows personally. He's never been to the city. He's never been to the church. His commitment to care for and pray for other believers goes well beyond just his inner circle of those he knows well. Now, we often call this intercessory prayer, which is just a big word that means praying for other people. And as I said a few weeks ago, the things we pray for says a lot about the priorities in our lives. What you and I spend time in prayer for says what is important to us. And our prayer lives ought to include thankfulness for Christian virtues, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of others as well. But reality reminds us that usually our prayer time is taken up with health, wealth, and happiness. So what Christian virtues do we see here? What Christian virtues are Paul thankful for and thus we ought to look for in others and be thankful for as well? Well, first of all, he mentions faith, the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Epaphras has brought word to Paul of the strong faith that is evident in the church in spite of the issues that Paul is going to have to deal with. Now, Paul is not writing to perfect believers, and the reason I know that is because there are no such things. Nobody is perfect. 
So these folks do have their problems. But he begins by citing their faith and their signs of faith. The fact that the word had spread about their faith must mean that they are practicing that faith because faith in and of itself cannot be seen. I mean, we can say we have faith, but nobody can see that unless we are putting our faith into practice in our lives. That is when it becomes evident. So the fact that Paul can be thankful for their faith tells me that they are living out their faith. And it is important to note that their faith was not in themselves. Their faith was not in their church leaders. Their faith is very clearly in Christ Jesus. Whatever else we're going to say about the situation going on in this church, Jesus is going to consistently be exalted and mentioned. I've said many times through the years that faith is only as good as its object. Faith in a person who cannot be trusted is not good faith. Faith in a football team that has proven doubtful over the years is not strong faith. But faith in Christ Jesus is solid because Christ Jesus himself is solid. He is dependable and worthy of our trust, unlike anything or anyone else. And this is not just what we might call saving faith. That is the initial act of trust when we place our faith in Christ and we are therefore reconciled to God. It includes that. But it is an ongoing faith. After all, faith in Christ is not a one-time event. We daily place our faith in Christ, not in order to be saved, but precisely because we are. And when this becomes the pattern of our lives, a practice we exercise daily, we then can be said to be faithful. That's not a word Paul usually puts in his introduction. But in Colossians, he does. And in fact, he does it twice. In verse 2, he calls them faithful brothers. He's writing to the faithful brothers. And then in verse 7, he says of Epaphras that he is a faithful minister of Christ on their behalf or our behalf. There's a textual variant there. And this is important because it is this ongoing faith and faithfulness that will be necessary for them to resist whatever the undermining influence is from the false teachers. So when is the last time you've noticed someone else's faith or someone else's faithfulness and not only noticed it, but thanked God for it? Or have you even taken the next step and encouraged them by saying to them, I see your faith. I notice your faithfulness. That's what Paul's doing here. And what a great encouragement that would be from the Apostle Paul. And frankly, what a great encouragement it would be from us if we said that to one another occasionally. Rather than criticizing one another, instead if we saw people and we said to them, you know what, I see how God is working in your life. I see your faith. And I want you to know I'm thankful for it. Well, the second Christian virtue we see here is not only faith in Christ Jesus, but secondly, love for one another. I want you to see the connection here. I want you to notice that vertical faith in God, that is when we have this faith in Christ Jesus, it demonstrates itself by love on a horizontal level. Faith toward God and love then toward one another. John, in both his gospel and his first epistle, 
makes it very clear that love for the brothers in Christ Jesus is one of the marks of genuine salvation, which of course also means the opposite. If we do not have love for one another, in the body of Christ specifically, then we have every reason to question whether our faith is genuine, regardless of what we might profess. And again, notice that this is love for all believers, not just the ones that you agree with on doctrine or politics or the safety measures during a pandemic. It is astounding the number of things we allow to come between us with both sides arguing that we're the spiritual ones and we have God on our side. But often the other side is saying the exact same thing. And sometimes neither of us are acting out of love for other believers. So maybe rather than God being on my side and not yours, maybe God's not on either one of our sides because neither one of us are acting out of love. We're both acting out of selfishness. I don't like to be so harsh, but it's true. Love toward other believers just doesn't seem to be the overriding characteristic anymore. Instead, criticism and labeling abound. So the third virtue we notice here, we've got uh, faith in Christ Jesus, then we've got love for one another, and then thirdly, and this third one is actually the basis for the other two, and that is hope that we have in heaven. Hope that is stored up gives us the motivation and the strength to persevere in our faith. It gives us the reason for loving one another, even when it is tough. Now, we tend to look at faith as something in the past. That is, we normally think of faith as that act that I mentioned a moment ago when we first place our trust in Christ. But as we've seen already, faith is not just a past action. It is to be a present and future reality, not a one-time act. Obviously, love for one another is a continuing action, both present and future. It's not to be something we do one day and then forget. But both of these are anchored in our sure hope of the future. A future in hope that we talked about last week as we ended our study in Isaiah. We said the Lord is going to come back, and when the Lord comes back, one of the things he's bringing with him is hope. Hope for every believer. And that hope is to anchor us in our daily lives until that day comes so that we might persevere in faith and in loving one another. Now, you might also recall that Paul brings these three virtues together in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We call that the love chapter. And love is indeed the priority there, but love's not the only virtue. Paul ends that chapter by saying, so now faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. We've seen the same three Christian virtues here. Faith in Christ Jesus, love for one another, and hope stored up for us in heaven. The third thing I want you to notice is not only are we thankful for Christian virtue. But we notice also that we're to be thankful for Christian progress. The truth of the gospel had come to them. Again, likely from the ministry of Epaphras. And they had embraced it and they had believed it. But they had not only, uh, they, it had not only come to them initially, but they had been faithful in spreading it to many throughout the world. But here's the thing I want you to see. I want you to see the progress part of this point. It wasn't just that they heard it, though obviously that was necessary. 
It wasn't just that they believed it. It was that they embraced it and they lived it. You do understand that James reminds us that even the demons hear and believe. I mean, they know the basics of the gospel. And there are a lot of people in our world who would say the same thing. Oh, yes, I believe. But I want to understand whether or not you and I believe to the point that we are being transformed, that the gospel has taken root in our lives and is now bearing fruit. Jesus told a parable about this very thing, that a good tree produces good fruit. Now, sure, the amount of fruit will vary even as he acknowledges in that parable, but the nature of the tree is seen by the fruit it produces. And those trees which do not produce good fruit are simply cut down and thrown in the fire to be used as fuel. So he compares this to the Christian life. The new nature given to us by Christ at conversion begins a transformation in our lives that ultimately results in good fruit. This good fruit is not the result of our hard work. It is the result of the indwelling spirit working in and through us and our commitment to abiding in Christ. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So Paul was thankful that he saw fruit in the believers in Colossae, and thus it gave him assurance that their faith was genuine. Again, do you and I give thanks to God when we see other believers bearing fruit? Or does it simply make us jealous or critical? Do we encourage them by letting them know that we see fruit in their lives? Do you say to them, I see God is working in you and you are bearing fruit. And I just want you to know, not only do I see it, but I thank God for it. I wonder if we do that in our own lives. And I don't mean that in a prideful way. But I mean, if we can acknowledge fruit in other people's lives, then we ought to be able to see it in our own lives as well. And at the same time, thank God for it. In a similar way, he says they are progressing because he sees that they are growing or increasing. The gospel truth was rooted in their lives and it continued to grow. So this combination of bearing fruit and growing is exactly what we want to see and it what, it's what gets us excited. I haven't reminded you in a very long time of our mission statement, but it's all over the foyer and you probably don't even recognize it now because you've seen it so many times. But it says we exist to make and mature believers. It's not just that we want people to pray a prayer or we want people to be converted. We do want that, but that's just the very beginning. Because after they are made believers, not by us, but obviously by God, after they are made believers, we want them to mature in their faith. That's what progress is all about. If there's not progress being made, it's simply a testimony that the decision was false. We don't want people to receive the word with joy and sprout up briefly only to fade away after a little while, which is one of the more frustrating things we encounter in church. We want people to profess faith in Christ and then over the years, over the course of their lives, they grow in Christ. Yes, there will be times when that growth is very slow, maybe even imperceptible at times. But there's also going to be other times when we have growth spurts spiritually and a lot of times that are sort of in the middle. But over the course of our lives, over the course of years, we ought to see that we are progressing and we are marching toward maturity. I've just finished reading a book that was simply called Maturity. In fact, drop down real quick to verse 28 of this first chapter. 
where Paul says there, it was his aim. This is his goal. This is his desire to present everyone mature in Christ. And we're going to see that over and over again. The idea of an immature Christian is a valid one. Only if you've been a believer for a very short time. If you've been a believer for decades, there is no reason for us to be immature in our faith. But if you've been a believer for a very short time, then obviously you are going to be immature. But all of us ought to be progressing toward maturity. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he was much more frustrated with them than he is this church in Colossae. And he said to them, they had a host of issues in that church. But he said to them, you know what, I'm still having to feed you milk. I can't even feed you solid food because you haven't progressed to the point where you can handle it. And so he was frustrated that they weren't maturing in their faith. That is not the case here in Colossae. They are growing. Now, all of us love babies. They're cute and they're cuddly. We've had several give birth over the last year, and we've got several more that are due very soon. And so when a new baby is born, we like to watch their expressions and see their progress. We want to share pictures so that everyone else can share in our joy. We mark their milestones. That is the first word they say, the first step they take, etc. And while we often complain that they grow up too fast, we certainly do want them to grow. In fact, if a baby does not grow, we get worried that something's wrong. And so if we determine that they are behind in their weight or their height, we take them to the doctor just to make sure there's not something wrong because growth is natural, even if we bemoan how quickly it happens. And Paul is saying the same thing here when it comes to our spiritual lives. Yes, we start out as new believers needing milk and unable to handle solid foods, but if we stay there, it's no longer cute, it is no longer joyful, it is sad and dangerous. And yet we've accepted that as the reality for many professing believers as if it's normal for baby Christians to remain babies for decades. Paul would not be expressing his thanks in prayer if that were the case in Colossae. He is grateful that they are growing which again is another sign that their faith was genuine and therefore they are truly saved. And so again, the question for us is both personally and can we see it in others? Do you give thanks to God for the growth you see in fellow believers or in your own life? Or do you even notice it? Do you see it in yourself and thank God that he is working in you? I'm concerned this morning, not just about whether or not we see these virtues and progress in others and are giving thanks to God for them. That is clearly something we ought to notice and include in our prayer lives. But I'm concerned even on a more fundamental point. I want to know if it's true of you. Can you see these Christian virtues, faith in Christ Jesus, love for one another, all based on the hope that we have in heaven? Can you see Christian progress in your life? That the gospel has taken root and it is now bearing fruit and growing or increasing so that you are growing toward spiritual maturity. Oh, I know we'd be quick to say, well, I'm not perfect. I didn't ask you to be perfect. None of us are perfect. I'm simply asking, are we growing toward maturity? Your kids aren't perfect. You're well aware of that. But they're growing. 
And that's the same thing that ought to be true in our spiritual lives. We're making progress spiritually. We're going to talk about that a lot in this study of Colossians because as we've already seen, it's Paul's aim to present every man mature in Christ. It's what drives us as ministers to see you active and growing in your faith. It's what frustrates us as ministers when we fail to see it. It's the reason we exist, as I've already said, to make and mature believers. And it ought to be your goal to faithfully follow Christ by growing in not only Christian virtues, but Christian progress. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the work you're doing in our lives and in our church. And I pray that we would begin to see that more and more, that we would learn to express our faith by loving one another, all of which would be anchored in the hope that we have in heaven. And I pray it's true of every believer at Beaver Dam that we are bearing fruit and growing spiritually. And Lord, if it's not, I pray that you would convict us, show us what's hindering or what obstacles are in our lives that are preventing that, and help us to be the kind of Christians that are growing in our walk with you. And as a result, we are bearing fruit for your glory. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.